What is progressive Christianity? How is it that as progressive theology finds its way into the church more and more that some find it exciting and freeing and others see it as dangerous or even another gospel? With so many people struggling with doubt and in the process of deconstructing and reconstructing their faith, how should we approach the search for truth? What's at the core of essential Christianity and what beliefs are a bridge too far? We'll be talking about all of that and much more on today's episode of Theology On Air. Welcome back to Theology on Air. Uh, I am Sarah Stone, Outreach Director for Young Adults at MDPC and part of the leadership team of Theology on Tap, out of which this ministry was born. And I'm joined by two really fun guests today, our very own Meredith Mills, pastor at Westminster United Methodist Church here in Houston, and the founder and like creative visionary behind Gastro Church, which you should all check out if you live here in Houston. Uh, and she's a member of our Theology on Tap leadership team, joining me to moderate today with our very special guest, Elisa Childers, who is a wife, a mom, an author, a blogger, and a speaker. She was, uh, you may recognize her as being a member of the award-winning CCM recording group, Zoe Girl. Uh, she's a popular speaker at apologetics and Christian worldview conferences, including STR's Reality Conference. She's been published at the Gospel Coalition, Crosswalk, The Stream, For Every Mom, Decision Magazine, and The Christian Post. And I saw her recently on the last episode of American Gospel, which was pretty cool. So she's, she's famous. Uh, and you can connect with Elisa online at elisachilders.com. We'll share that again at the end of the episode. But um, for those of you maybe joining us for the first time, uh, Theology on Air is a ministry born out of Theology on Tap, which is... Um, an event that happens in Houston, Texas for young adults where we drink craft beer and we talk about interesting things around culture and faith and philosophy and um, Christian living and all of that. Um, it's a lot of fun. And then here on the podcast, we get to go a little bit more in depth about some of those issues. And this episode is really exciting to me. It's part one of a three-part series on essential Christianity. What does it mean to be Christian, what beliefs are sort of required, as it were, to call yourself a Christian, to be a, a believer? What beliefs are too far? What takes you from sort of being, <clears throat> excuse me, a traditional Christian to being like, oh, I don't know, that's a bridge too far. So uh, today is part one. Elisa is going to talk to us about some of the dangers of progressive theology. Um, so we'll just jump right in. Elisa, tell us a little bit about your own kind of story of faith. I know you did a lot of questioning at one point and you've become passionate about this topic. So how did that come about? Walk us through that. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on the show. It's great to be with both of you ladies today. And uh, yeah, so my background, essentially, I grew up in a Christian home, pretty much your run-of-the-mill evangelical upbringing. I had great parents, though. My, my parents, um, you know, for all of the faults that I can now look at in the evangelical church, even especially during the time I was growing up in the mid to late 80s and early 90s in that area, um, they did such a good job of modeling real Christianity to me. And so, man, I don't even remember a time when I wasn't aware of Jesus, of the presence of God. In fact, when my mom, at five years old, my mom came in and asked me if I wanted to ask Jesus into my heart. And I remember thinking, well, he's already in my heart because oh. I just... I was already in relationship with Jesus. And so, um, 
Yeah. And so, and it wasn't just, you know, this one time say a prayer and then it's all good, like some kind of metaphysical fire insurance, but it was something that they really lived out. And so growing up, I got to see the gospel really radically changed the lives of people. And so some of the ways I saw that happen was in church and learning to read the Bible. And I loved the Bible and studying the Bible. But also my mom and dad did a lot of what they called street ministry. So that would include going down to Skid Row in LA and working the soup lines and the, at the Fred Jordan mission down there, we'd go down on Christmas Eve's uh, like several Christmas Eve's and um, just minister to the homeless people down there. So I, I thought that was normal. I didn't realize that most people growing up in the church don't have experiences like that, watching their mom hug on prostitutes and drug dealers and not to be afraid of people, but to love them with the love of Jesus and to share the gospel with them. And so with my dad, we would do a street evangelism, which was interesting because, you know, you go out and you see people with the signs that that was us with karaoke boxes. Of course, we weren't, we didn't have the hateful signs, but uh, just trying to preach the gospel and through that, it was, you know, that, I mean, that's going to be messy, right? You're going to have all kinds of different people that you're interacting with growing up. And so I'm so thankful for that. In fact, my mom and dad did a much better job with me than I do with my kids in that area. But, uh, but so for me, real Christianity was people who love Jesus, obey word, serve other people. That it was pretty simple, but it was very genuine. And so I think that because I had such a good experience with Christianity, I wasn't eager to doubt. I didn't have a reason to want to doubt my faith. And so I didn't. I didn't really have any significant doubt about what I believed, or at least the truthfulness of it, until much later as an adult. And so as you mentioned, I spent some time in the CCM world and going to every kind of church you could possibly imagine, singing and, and touring. And when that was coming to a close, uh, I was married by that point with a baby, and we began attending a church, non-denominational church, right in the heart of Middle Tennessee where we lived. And it was in the context of this uh, church uh, environment that I was invited to be a part of a smaller group that the pastor compared to seminary. And so that really excited me because I thought, wow, I, I want to dig into my faith and know more about the intellectual side of what I believe and why I believe it. But what I didn't know going into that class was that the pastor was actually agnostic. And so he was bringing in all kinds of skeptical objections against what I thought were pretty basic Christian beliefs, like the reliability of the Bible, the Bible being the word of God, uh, importance of doctrines like the virgin birth and the resurrection, things like that. And all of that was, was questioned with a heavily skeptical bent. And so we were reading books that were opposing those kinds of things and showing that that doesn't really matter. And so what I realize now, though, looking back on it, is that what I was a part of really was his deconstruction, this pastor. And so a lot of people in that class went along with it and deconstructed. The class ended up, along with the church, uh, identifying themselves as a progressive Christian church. And that's when I realized, oh, that's what that was. And uh, as a result of the class, after we left, I went through a incredibly dark time of doubt and deconstruction. I didn't know to call it deconstruction because I had never heard that word. And it's not something I wanted to happen. It was more like it was happening to me, mm -hmm. but it just seemed like everything was up in the air. Everything I thought was true, I could no longer be sure about. And so 
uh, just to bring it full circle to the discussion today about the essentials, that's what I wanted to know because a lot of people in my class, as they were deconstructing, they were bringing up reasons like, I grew up in a really legalistic environment and I'm rejecting that, or I didn't have my prayers answered. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering if God's even good or struggling with some of the Old Testament stories they were reading in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so I realized, okay, if, if I'm going to decide that this is not true, then I really want to be sure that I'm rejecting the real thing. I want to make sure that I define Christianity, not just based on what I grew up with, because maybe what I grew up with was nice and wonderful, but maybe that's not the real thing. And so that's when I went on a journey to discover what I call historic Christianity. And I can define that in a moment, if you like, what, what, how I use that term, but um, because I wanted to know what was true. And so as I studied pre-New Testament creedal material, all the way up through New Testament material, through the earliest church fathers, to try to get my hands around what Christianity is, mm -hmm. uh, that was the first step. And what I didn't realize is just the beautiful history of our church. So I'd never studied church history before that point. And I mean, I thought, you know, the, the church started when Billy Graham was born, basically. <laughs> so just investigating all these things was um, an amazing journey and actually began to rebuild my faith. And, and a lot of apologetics too. I came across uh, the, just the rich intellectual tradition that, are, that we have as Christians and all these debates that have been going on for so long. So it, it was, it was really um, encouraging to know that the core essential of what I believed about God was true. A lot of other things changed. Uh, some of my beliefs about uh, secondary issues have changed. And um, I've realized some things might've been more important that aren't so important now. So uh, it's definitely been some changing, but there was a reconstruction that happened after that based on the best I can discover what Christianity is and what it's always been and what's made it unique in the world for 2000 years. Yeah. It's fascinating to hear you talk because I have been really intrigued by this idea lately of deconstructing, reconstructing one's faith. It seems like it's more and more common, or maybe it's just that people are talking about it more, and really kind of a necessary practice. At some point, you sort of have to maybe start to doubt, maybe throw away like the faith of your parents, or at least put it on the shelf for a little bit, and then build up your own worldview. But the question is, how? Like, how do you know? How do you seek truth? How do you know it's truth? Do you, are you really reconstructing something, or are you discovering something new? I'm curious, mm -hmm. kind of your thoughts on maybe how that process should go. Because if we're all seeking truth, you'd think we'd land on pretty similar beliefs in the end, right? But then we don't. So I'm, right. I'm curious well, your thoughts on... Well, and that's why I think the word essential is important because there really are core issues that... I mean, not that the church hasn't drifted off from time to time. And you can trace that through history. When, if you take the core of what was essential in the beginning and you trace that through church history, you're going to find that core that you can trace through. Um, so yeah, and, and I think that the Bible is less clear on other issues. And that's where we find ourselves saying, okay, we can have grace for each other and disagree over something like women in ministry or speaking in tongues or baptism or something along those lines. And I think there's some nuanced views and some gray areas in some of those things. And that's why we can have grace to disagree. Uh, but I do think deconstruction in the way that, you know, it's actually a philosophical term that is... Uh, has to do with with postmodernism so it has to do with actually redefining what words mean so i could deconstruct 
even what we're doing right now to the point where I can explain that actually this isn't an interview where I'm talking with two other ladies because I can redefine words and I can challenge what all that really means in reality. I think that type of deconstruction can be unhealthy because you have to look at the motivation. If you're, if you're wanting to deconstruct in a more rigid sense or a more like, uh, I would say like a 2D sense, where you're literally just taking everything you were taught to believe and examining it and saying, okay, is this true what my parents passed down to me? Is this true? I think that can be extremely healthy and very vital and an important part of every Christian making their faith their own. Um, and so some people may discover that a good bit of what they were taught was true and right. Mm -hmm. Others may realize, wow, I grew up in a really wacky situation that is not what Christianity historically has been. Uh, others might find themselves somewhere in the middle. And so I think that if the motivation is to seek truth, it's always going to be a good thing. But I do see in this whole culture of doubt, this deconstruction culture, another side, a darker side of it, where it seems like people, and again, this is judging motives, so I, I don't know for sure, but from some of the stories that I've listened to, it definitely seems like there were things about Christianity they didn't like or that didn't resonate with their preferences or what they felt was a good thing. And so rather than saying, okay, well, I just think Christianity is false. They're saying, well, I want to keep the title Christian, but I'm going to change the definition of what Christianity is. And I, and so this is in my book, I, I argue, I don't think you can do that. I think that if you honestly examine your beliefs and you say, I think Christianity is not true then I think you should discard it and call yourself something else. But I don't think it's, it's, it's right to take something that has a 2000 year core, change some of those core issues and say, I'm still a Christian. I can still say I follow Jesus. And that's why I argue in the book. Yeah, no, really good distinctions. And Meredith, feel free to jump in anytime. I have like a thousand questions for Elisa, so I don't want to hog the mic, but I'm just, I'm really interested to get to, get to get to your definition of what essential Christianity is, because I think a lot of our conversation is going to go from that, and I know that's your core, your core thesis anyway, so can we get to your definition? Yeah, that's a good question, and that's the key question, isn't it? Because if we're operating from different definitions, we're not going to get anywhere, and so when I went on this journey to discover what Christian history is, people say, you know, go to the creeds. Well, I wanted to go way before the creeds. I mean, Nicene Creed, Apostles' Creed, uh, you know, I affirm those creeds. But it, a lot of Christians aren't aware that our New Testament actually contains dozens of creeds that predate the books themselves. And so arguably the earliest creed in all of Christianity comes from 1 Corinthians 15. Of course, 1 Corinthians 15 was written in the 50s, somewhere around there. But Paul was recounting. And, and again, one thing I just want to make the distinction too. Uh, when I was doing this search, I didn't just go to conservative scholars and see what they concluded and just go with that. I wanted to take what scholars of all stripes in New Testament studies and biblical studies were generally in agreement about. And this creed is one of those things. Uh, highly skeptical scholars, including Bart Ehrman, uh, and I believe Gerd Ludemann, I'd have to go back and check that, but N.T. Wright, who, you know, is sort of... Uh, He's kind of a controversial figure in the conservative church, although I agree with a lot of the things he says. Mm -hmm. um, but so, and then you have somebody like a Gary Habermas, you know, evangelical scholar. So all of these scholars mm -hmm. on the spectrum from highly conservative to not just skeptical, but actually agnostic and atheist are saying, 
saying, yeah, this creed is probably the earliest iteration of Christianity. We have, in fact, Bart Ehrman, the famously skeptical scholar, says this was Christianity in a nutshell for the earliest Christians. And so in that creed that Paul's recounting, he says, uh, I was actually really surprised, to be honest, to hear of this creed because uh, he says that Christ died for our sins. So it wasn't just that he died, a reason was given for our sins. Now, of course, I know that different streams of Christianity are going to define what for our sins means differently. But because it's in that earliest creed, it's, it's my belief that how we define that is going to be a core issue because it was a core issue for Paul. So we can come back to that in a moment, but Jesus died for our sins. So there was an element of our sins having, whatever he did on the cross, our sins had to do with that. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just that he was crucified by an angry mob to show the way forward for forgiveness or that uh, he was making himself a model to show us what love looks like. There was, there was an element of our sin that had to do with that. Mm -hmm. Then it says in accordance with the scriptures. And so for the earliest Christians, uh, the, the beliefs in this creed were inextricably tied to the prophetic passages of the Old Testament, because we have all of these prophecies in the Old Testament about the Jewish Messiah. So Paul is saying Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And of course, many people will go back to Isaiah 53 on that, and we can get to that in a moment. Uh, then it goes on that he was buried. Now, that seems like an odd thing to, to put in a creed, because obviously if he died, he was buried. But I've heard some scholars talk about this, that the burial in that creed essentially is the proof that he was actually dead. So we, we have this, we're saying he was buried, like he was dead and buried. And then that he was raised uh, in accordance with the scripture. So again, you have two times in this creed where you've got, uh, you've got the atonement and you have the resurrection, both tied with the truthfulness, at least, and reliability of the Old Testament scriptures. I think that's pretty robust stuff for the first century. That, that is a pretty robust definition of Christianity. Now, Gary Habermas, a scholar, will say that you hear people say the essentials are the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And he argues, actually, he says, I would say the death deity and resurrection of Jesus, because lots of those other creeds, at least several of them, uh, that are, again, pre-New Testament material are going to talk about the deity, of, the deity of Jesus and the earliest Christians' belief that he was God, not a later tradition, not something that evolved later. And so uh, I would say Christianity is certainly so much more than that, but it can't be any less than that. Mm -hmm. And that's where I would at least start in talking about the essentials. So I'm just recapping. Death, burial, death for our sins, Resurrection, divinity. That was that was pretty much. Am, in did accordance I miss anything? In accordance with the scriptures. Divinity, uh, and biblical. I guess you could say biblical authority. It would have to have authority if they were saying sure. all of this was predicted, and then, you know, this is what happens. Yeah, that's 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 pretty broad. Um, Sarah, I didn't mean to hijack the train. You can take it that's back. Good. So if that is sort of the the base level of historic Christianity, then maybe let's define the other sort of end of it. What's, what, how do you define progressive Christianity? And then maybe we can walk through some of the ways you are like specific beliefs or practices yeah. you think sort of crept into the church. Yeah. You think it, are a problem. So um, let me just tell a little bit of story so you can get where I'm coming from on my answer to this question. 
So when I saw that that church I was at identified itself as a progressive Christian church, that was the first time I'd heard that term. I didn't know what that was, uh, but then I began to see it everywhere. And so at the time, as I, my faith was being rebuilt, I was reading a ton of scholars. I was reading, uh, I, I was auditing classes in seminaries. I was just, I was so hungry. I was just trying to get all the information I could get. And, uh, but at the same time, a couple years later, I decided to really focus in on progressive Christianity. So what mm -hmm. I did, my, my definition is going to be based on basically spending two years reading people who call themselves progressive Christians. So it's not some kind of derogatory term I invented. These are people who say, yes, we are progressive in our beliefs and in our, um, in the things we're writing. Here's our definition and reading their books, listening to their podcasts, watching <laughs> the trajectory of where they pr progressed to as the time went on. And at the beginning, I thought, well, it's really hard to define because progressive Christians aren't really united around beliefs. It's, it's more about what you do. It's not really so much uh, about what you believe. In fact, in my class, there was one guy who believed in the resurrection of Jesus and another one who didn't. And they were fine with that. And I was bothered by it. And I'm like, well, why am I bothered by that? But they're okay with them disagreeing just being in disagreement about that. And I realized that one of the key sort of elements of progressive Christianity is that uh, at least, now I'm not talking about the general person in the pew, I can't speak to that, but the thought leaders who are writing the books and leading the charge, um, these would be people who are okay being in unity together, even if they disagree on maybe some of the core issues we just discussed in that creed. And so I always said it was hard to define, but after I read their books, I realized there really are some core tenets of progressive Christianity that virtually every thought leader that you're going to read is going to be in uh, agreement with. And so if we kind of maybe lay it on top of that creed, there's going to be implications for other doctrines in that. And I realize we only have an hour, so we can't drill down into everything like original sin and all of this. But if you want to encapsulate the Christian gospel, essentially following that creed, that Jesus died for our sins. Well, that means we, we are sinners, right? There is such a thing as sin, that, that it's a problem that needs to be solved. Jesus' death solved it somehow. Uh, he, he was resurrected. And then, of course, you know, Im, implied in that, and, and you can't just take the one creed. You have to take its context and the New Testament material, earliest church fathers. Uh, and, and what you get is this generally this picture that men are sinners. We needed to be saved. Jesus came to save us from our sin. The cross was the, the avenue through which he did that. He was raised from the dead and, uh, and, but it doesn't end there. Of course, you know, if you read the new Testament, early church fathers, there's this, uh, being saved when you put your faith in Jesus, it's, you know, there's, there's just this, this sort of gospel story, God's redemptive acts in history. Mm -hmm. So with progressive Christians, generally speaking, again, not all of them are going to be denying all of this, but there is a general consensus that it wasn't sin that separated us from God. So progressive Christians aren't going to necessarily say there's no such thing as sin, or we don't sin sometimes, or make mistakes, or do wrong things, or express our brokenness in the world. But that's not what separated us from God. Mm -hmm. And so what you'll often hear, and this is actually something that comes from the new age, well, where they'll say it's, it's your fa failure to realize your own belovedness, or it's your own shame that, that was separating, it's self-imposed, but you were never actually separated. Well, if that's true, 
then you don't need Jesus to solve your sin problem on the cross. So that, that kind of goes out the window. In fact, in the progressive church, this is often referred to as cosmic child abuse. The idea that there would need to be a sacrifice made to reconcile man to God. And if it's God's son and God's requiring it, well, doesn't that make him a cosmic child abuser? So there's largely a rejection of the atonement. Now, I want to be, be precise with what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that everybody who calls themselves a Christian has to affirm all the finer points of penal substitutionary atonement. But in some way, Christ's death has to be substitutionary. It has to be sacrificial in some way for it to be meaningfully Christian. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you want to argue about if it was compensation, if it was payment, if it was, you know, uh, uh, language that can be used that's substitutionary, that's fine. We can have those discussions. But generally that's just rejected in the progressive church because but it makes sense. If you don't really think you're separated and need to be reconciled to God, then that would be a horrific way to do something. That doesn't even make any sense. And then, of course, with progressive Christians, some will affirm the physical resurrection, some will not. But without those key elements that are coming before that, the physical resurrection of Jesus isn't going to have much meaning as far as solving the sin problem that seems to be so prevalent all throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And so uh, so an overall definition of progressive, and the history of progressive Christianity is going to be important in defining it as well. But my elevator pitch fly over with that foundation laid would be that progressive Christians essentially are coming, a group of Christians who are coming up and out of the evangelical church that are questioning core doctrines. They're adopting some of the more uh, liberal theological assumptions that arose in the late 1800s, early 1900s that we see in the mainline uh, denominations, uh, but, but coming up and out of the evangelical church and bringing those, those ideas and some of those conclusions into the evangelical church. And it also, it re- there's a really um, different view of the Bible. The progressive church is gonna say, well, the Bible is our ancestors' best attempts to communicate what they believed about God in their time and places, but it wasn't really God speaking. So therefore, the Bible is no longer in its entirety the Word of God. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, it's not going to be authoritative if it's, if it's not the Word of God. And so I guess that would be sort of a flyover, but we can drill down into any of those points if you'd like. Yeah, no, there's so much there. Oh, man. And uh, for those listening, we've actually recorded these in reverse order, sort of by accident. So some of what you were saying, I've I've heard um, uh, the guy that's in part two, and a little bit in part three, but mostly in part two, say some of what you're saying. Mm. And one of the things I've noticed is um, there, there seems to be this like, weird um, false dichotomy that you either are in the camp of, I think sin is real and it mattered and Jesus died for it. Or you're in this camp that says, um, Jesus is victor over sin and death, and he's bringing a new kingdom in, and we get to participate to bring that kingdom here, and we're sort of like co-participants with God. And I think it's interesting because there are many of us out there that are like, I like both those things. Yeah, that's a false dichotomy. What's that? That's a false dichotomy. I mean, that's, that's why I like both and. But it, but it seems like that's kind of the thing. And then so the stereotype for traditional Christians or um, what you would call historic Christianity is yeah. like, we're so focused on sin. We're, we're so obsessed with sin. Um, yeah. and, and that's there kind of a bad rap, you know? Yeah, there can be different emphasis 
that different streams of Christianity are going to place. But I, I agree with Meredith that it's a false dichotomy because, uh, of course, I affirm Jesus victor. There's so it's all over the scripture that he did that. And, but I, at the same time, uh, am not going to embrace that to the exclusion of the substitutionary element, because without the substitutionary element of that, Christus Victor loses all essential meaning, because if we're still just a bunch of sinners that don't have that sin problem solved, if he just came to defeat the power of sin, well, that doesn't do anything for my sins that I'm actually committing right now in real time. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it, in fact, William Lane Craig, who has just written a just a epic book on the atonement, uh, he, he talks about how some theologians refer to the atonement like a gem. So there's different facets to it. Oh, so much language. We could, we could spend the rest of our lives plumbing the depth of biblical language in regard to what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And it's just beautiful and um, just practically endless, the, the different places you can go to, to think about the, the atonement. But he says the shelf, the, that, that middle part that is kind of the base that all of the other things are reflecting off and, and relating with is that substitutionary atonement. Um, and so uh, I do, yeah, I think that's a false dichotomy. And, and that is one of the charges people will bring is they'll say, well, I affirm Jesus Victor, not substitution. Yeah. Or somebody say, I affirm substitution, not Jesus Victor. That's the wrong way to look at it. Uh, the Bible uses all of that language to describe what happened. And I think that as Christians, we should take all of that and bring that into our atonement understanding. Yeah, no, for sure. I think, Sarah, oh, go ahead. Do you mind, so do you mind if I ask a quick, quick follow-up question? I know we're, we're going to get into um, some of these issues, but part of what came to my mind when you were talking about um, where progressive Christianity goes uh, from, I mean, you started with kind of four core tenets that were, that were pretty, I think, basic, but then this question of um, biblical authority, what does that mean for the Old Testament? What does that mean for I mean, I've listened to some of your podcasts and you've talked about things like progressive revelation and things like that. What would you say to people who say they have landed in the, in the progressive Christianity camp simply because they think it's true, right? Like because, not because they're, they're trying to feel better about themselves, but they look at the old Testament and they say, there's gotta be something going on in the way we interpret this. Yeah. Uh, so maybe, pro maybe progressive revelation makes more sense. Um, and they're, and they're actually interacting with, with, with truth claims rather than just not feeling good about themselves. Uh, well, let me start by saying as, as a theological term, I affirm the term progressive revelation. What theologians yeah. are generally talking about with progressive revelation is that Abraham didn't have as much information about God, uh, that Moses would have. Moses didn't have as much information, uh, as Paul would have. Right. So, you know, Moses may may not have had a fully orbed understanding of the trinity uh you know so there there there's going there is that where god reveals more of himself we see that happen throughout the bible uh but the i think where when progressives use the word i, I haven't relation but when they're talking about progressive theology their progressive revelation would say when Moses, you know, if you affirm that Moses wrote the, the first five books of the Bible, which I do, so I'll just, I'll, I know that not everybody does, but let's just say he did. Um, when Moses wrote, God says, or God spoke to Moses, um, then we can take that. What came out of his mouth next was God speaking through him. And so that's God, that's God speaking. Now, it might not have been as much information as Paul would have, but 
what Paul says isn't going to contradict anything Moses said, and what God speaks through a prophet or a biblical writer is not going to contradict what somebody else is saying. So if there's a misunderstanding, the misunderstanding is probably on our part. And so that would be how I would describe progressive revelation. But for a progressive Christian that might say, hey, I actually think this is the right way to read the Bible. I think that's actually true. And I think that, that you're wrong in the way that you read it. Um, that's a fair, that's a fair uh, argument to make. And the answer that I would give them is let's go to Jesus. You know, what did Jesus say? Now, we only know what he said about the Old Testament, but let's just, let's just take that. And dozens of times Jesus called the Old Testament, uh, he'll quote a prophet, and he doesn't say, uh, Isaiah said, or Jeremiah said. He says, God said to you, and then he'll quote Isaiah. Uh, or he'll say, uh, it is written. And of course, scholars will tell you that when Jesus uses it is written or its equivalent, that's equal with saying it's inspired by God. This is breathed out by God. Mm. It's God's word. And so we just have dozens and dozens of examples of Jesus quoting the Old Testament saying, God said this to you. Do you not know what God said? And so the, to the progressive Christian, I would just ask, you know, are, do you disagree with Jesus or do you maybe think he got something wrong? Because there will be progressives that will tell you, not all, but some that will say, well, I think Jesus got some things wrong. I think he had racial bias that the woman, you know, the Syrophoenician woman corrected him. And so... Um, but I think you know, if we're going to call ourselves followers of Jesus in any meaningful sense, then we should take his teachings and his views as our own if we're going to call ourselves Jesus followers. Thank you. Yeah, I think so many of these questions, I mean, really almost all of the podcasts we record at the end of the day come down to how are you reading scripture, right? Like, how are you interpreting yeah. scripture? Um, the We recorded yesterday part two of this podcast, so I, I have sort of like... I have foreknowledge basically, um, but, um, but you know, the, the pastor kept saying, and he was lovely. Um, but he kept saying things like, well, when I read about say, um, the Canaanite destruction, I just can't follow a God that would do that. I can't live with a God who would say X, Y, Z about the LGBTQ issue. I can't. And I mean, we, we asked him about that and he, um, well, you'll have to listen to the podcast to hear how he answered it, but it very much seems like, um, I can't, get behind a God that would do these things. And so I have to read things differently. I have to either read it as a metaphor or people at the time would have understood it this way, but we now understand it this way. How do you kind of counteract some of that? And how, do, I mean, you said something about reading the Bible the right or the wrong way. What's mm -hmm. the right way? I mean, you I, said one thing, but. You read the Bible, you give the Bible the same respect and courtesy that you would give any book you read. So we know that books have genres, right? So you, if you're reading a book of poetry, you understand it's poetry. There's going to be metaphor, there's going to be rhyme and cadence and all kinds of different literary elements that will contribute to that being a poetic or a type of, of, a, of a section. Uh, there are, if you're reading a history book, you're going to read that understanding that the author at least is meaning to communicate, this actually happened in history. If you read a letter somebody writes to someone else, you're understanding this person was writing this to these people for a specific purpose, a specific time and place. And so I think we give scripture that same respect. I wouldn't take a history book and say, I really don't like what happened in that history book. So I'm going to just turn that into a metaphor for something else. Because here's the thing, 
So anytime I hear someone say, I couldn't believe in a God who, and then just anything, you could just fill in the blank with anything. What that's telling me is that they are putting the authority for what they believe to be true and moral and good onto themselves rather than on something outside of themselves. And in, in philosophy, that's called subjective truth. That's, that's something that's true for the subject, but it's not true in objective reality. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when, uh, I mean, this may sound harsh to some of the listeners or watchers, but I really think when somebody's saying that, like, I'm going to change the way I read this, I'm going to take this, his, this section of history and make it a metaphor, or I'm going to ch change what the author is very clearly trying to communicate here uh, to make it more palatable to me. Well, at that point, basically what you're saying is, I don't think they got it right. I don't think that's true. And, I, I, and all I'm arguing is that's fine if that's your conclusion, but, but don't try to call it Christianity if, if you're going to change uh, the way that Christians have historically read the Bible. And of course, people will bring up the point that for a large portion of church history, lots of guys read the Bible uh, more alle allegorically. And I actually have a podcast on this coming up on my podcast very soon. But what people don't realize is they didn't read it allegorically like we would say allegorically today. Mm -hmm. They weren't discounting the history. They were adding meaning on the top of it. Mm -hmm. They were saying, well, here's what this can represent as an allegory, but they weren't denying that it happened historically. And so often today when people say I'm reading this allegorically, they're saying it didn't happen historically and I'm just going to interpret it as something else. And so I think when, when you're going to do that, if you're going to go against the way Jesus read scripture, the way the disciples and the apostles and the earliest church fathers read scripture, I think you got to look at yourself and say, what am I doing? Am I, am I really in line with that? Or am I doing something new and different? And maybe then just call it something else. Yeah, no, that's a really good distinction. I'm glad you said that because anytime that we get into these conversations and people will say, do you not think that X, Y, Z is a metaphor? I'll say yes, but I also think it happened, you know? Yeah. Um, there's, so, all, there's all kinds of typology mm -hmm. in the Old Testament where oh, we sure. see David slaying Goliath as a- I was just going to say that one. That's so funny. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that, the, the, that that didn't happen in real history. It's right. that we can, we can see David. We can see, oh, goodness, all through the Old Testament. It's gorgeous. All through the Old Testament. It's all about Jesus. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that those historical stories didn't happen. Right. So how then do you answer people who would say, okay, progressive theology has offered those who have been sort of wounded by the church, um, those who are in deconstruction phase, a soft place to land and consider these big questions. It's sort of a safe place for doubt and reconstruction. And maybe that's part of the benefit of, of what we've been defining as progressive theology. How do you answer that? I think that's a really good question. And so I'll give a two-pronged response to this. A, I think the evangelical church needs to do better. We need to be better at embracing people who are going through doubt interacting with their questions, uh, that's, that's supposed to be what discipleship is. Mm -hmm. The problem, though, is that we've blown it in that area, generally speaking, uh, in, at least in the evangelical church today, uh, where you'll hear stories, so many people growing up in streets. Now, now, again, I didn't experience that. I felt like I could ask my parents anything. Mm -hmm. I just didn't think of the questions at the time. But, um, but a lot of people have grown up in these really restrictive environments where if they asked a tough question, they were told, oh, just have faith, or you can't ask that, those questions around here. And, and I do think that has driven a lot of people over to the progressive church. So my word to the evangelical church, 
let's do better. Let's be that safe place. The problem though, is that often when people, you know, there are answers. And so as someone's discipling someone toward truth, there, there could come a point where that person like, I think this is true. And then at that point they might self-select out uh, to go somewhere else. And that, that can happen. The reason people say that the progressive church is a safe place is because nobody's going to tell them they're wrong on their conclusions. So you can essentially come to whatever conclusion you want and it's fine. There's not going to be any accountability doctrinally as far as, and, and that is, that is a very different thing, but to show why I think that's actually not a safe place, it might be a comfortable place to process doubts. It might be a place that feels good to do that. But the reason it's not a safe place is because, again, just getting back to that core gospel, Jesus solving the sin problem. Mm -hmm. If I have cancer, and uh, let's, say, let's even say I had a terrible experience at a hospital, and there was even a doctor that was abusive to me even, or really just mean and rigid. And I'm like, I'm never stepping into a hospital ever again, but then I get cancer mm -hmm. and I find a place that has a beautiful room and they give me a bed and, um, company and love and acceptance and all of the things that I'm looking for that I didn't get at the hospital, but they're not going to give me the chemotherapy, which might hurt a little bit. You know, I've, I, I've never done it myself, but I have friends who've gone through chemotherapy. The side effects can be really difficult and painful. And, but by withholding the gospel cure, it's not a safe place because really all you're doing is giving somebody a comfortable place to die. And so the evangelical church needs to do better uh, at, at, at welcoming skeptical questions because I believe the gospel can withstand skepticism. Uh, we don't have to be afraid of those questions, but at the end of the day, uh, yes, a lot of people are driven to the progressive church, but at the end of the day, they're just going to get a blanket and a warm bed, but they're not going to be given the cure to what's really wrong with humanity. Mm. That's good. Meredith, did you have a question? Yeah, I love that image. And I have, uh, so I have a follow-up question. And Sarah, if this gets us off the track, you are welcome to like edit this out because I don't want to get too far off the topic of what we're supposed to be talking about. But I think what's coming to my mind as like that image of hospital <laughs> hospital versus hotel basically uh um one of the hallmarks of progressive christianity i think is that uh, they have an increased focus on external practices like the the practice of prayer um gets a whole lot of emphasis um the, i mean we Sarah and I go back and forth about mysticism all the time. You know, the experience of the presence of God gets a whole lot of emphasis. You have a whole lot of, let's go back and read the Desert Fathers and a whole lot of, um, you, that is paired with, I think, um, frankly, a better job of ministry with the poor for a lot of them. Um, it's paired with this kind of increased hospitality toward the least of these. I'm wondering what you make of that. Um, sure. And I'm wondering if you think that's yeah i'm wondering what you what you make of that because it does seem progressive that progressive christianity seems to be linked with with those two things well let's start with the the emphasis on prayer i might push back on that just a little bit because what i've experienced in the progressive church now i'm not talking about the main lines and i'm not talking about sure. 
even the more specifically contemplative uh, aspect of, of Christianity. But in the progressive church, now a lot of them are into the contemplative practices for sure. Um, but what I, what I see is not a, a deeper emphasis on prayer, but a deeper emphasis on, like you said, mystical practices. So you're okay. going to have Eastern meditation coming into the progressive church in a big way. I'm seeing so, so many progressive Christians go to uh, sensory deprivation therapy, all kinds of these therapies um, mm -hmm. that, that are uh, extra, extra Christian. You know, I'm not saying they're all wrong, but extra Christian therapies, um, even just this really heavy emphasis on the Enneagram and, and all of these kind of more mystical type things, uh, I wouldn't necessarily call that biblically defined prayer. Okay, sure. so I would make that distinction. Sure. Um, and yeah, Desert Fathers, I love reading the Desert Fathers. So, you know, I'd be, probably be right there with them on that one. Um, but I'm trying to remember the second, oh, the, the emphasis on the poor. I do believe that's a little bit of a false narrative. I hear okay. that all the time. Conservative Christians don't care about the poor. Uh, this can be this can be falsified with data. Christians, okay. Bible-believing, gospel-centered Christians have done more acts of service throughout history in the world than virtually any other group. And so I think what happens is you hear uh, a lot of conservative churches do all kinds of uh, humanitarian and phil philanthropic work, but because it's not the uh, the course of their gospel message, mm. you don't always hear about it. Right. You don't always hear about, like my church, for example, it's a small little church. Uh, he preaches the gospel every Sunday. There's all kinds of stuff. Uh, uh, philanthropics, human trafficking, they're involved with saving girls out of human trafficking all over the world. They do all kinds of this work all over, but they just don't talk about it a whole lot as far as being the emphasis of the gospel. It's a fruit of their belief in Jesus. As Christians, we're supposed to do this. And we send missionaries out uh, all over the world. And so, so I, I, I'll have to remember back, but there is an article I have that shows all of this that, that conservative Bible-believing Christians have done. So I don't fully buy the narrative that conservative Christians don't care about the poor. It's certainly, that wasn't my experience growing up. That was a major emphasis of the Christianity I grew up with. Um, most of the Christians I know are giving a lot of money to organizations that are helping victims of human trafficking and uh, all these kinds of different uh, organizations. And so uh, I think I think I would just, if somebody said that, I would say, I just want to ask you, you know, where show me some data on this because I may be wrong. Maybe progressive Christians are doing more. Uh, but what I see progressive Christians doing is, is sort of uh, lining up with the world and culture's definition of justice, which is going to be informed by uh, a critical theory base, which is going to pit everybody as oppressed versus oppressor. So their justice, and I actually I shouldn't have put that in quotes, because I know that that's how they define justice. I don't think that's biblically how we define justice. But they're, they're doing acts of what they believe are justice, but they're doing it according to the world system. And mm -hmm. so that's going to mean they're going to be advocating, uh, again, we mentioned LGBTQ rights. That's going to be a major emphasis in the progressive church. Whereas, of course, as we all know, historically, that's not been something that Christians can affirm. And so I think what we're seeing is there's different types of things going on. Um, but yeah, I would, just, I would just challenge that narrative a little bit. You know, it's interesting you bring up some of these kind of social justice issues, and I don't want to really get into any of them in particular because those are a whole other podcast, maybe for a whole other day. But I do think in talking with um, the pastor that's part of the part two of this series, um, seeing other Christians uh, be unkind to certain populations or 
seemingly exclusive, and I don't mean exclusive as far as, um, you know, leadership, but even just belonging, it seems yeah. like, right, um, is part of what has shot some people into progressive theology. So another sort of devil's advocate question for you is, um, you know, many would say that pushing, uh, that progressive theology, if you push back against that, it's just trapping Christians in patterns of like legalism and fundamentalism, which of course we don't want to do. Um, how do you respond to that? Okay, so I want to make sure I understand your question. You're saying when we tell people not to affirm progressive theology, it's trapping them in legalism. How do we respond so to that? We're in, in this, in your book, you're trying to um, tell people about the dangers of progressive theology and ho hopefully have them walk away from that. Um, the people that are entrenched in it would say, well, you are just wanting me to stay entrenched in legalism, fundamentalism, be exclusive, and you know, these kinds of yeah. things. And I'm just wondering, I mean, I know that's what a lot of people listening to this will be thinking. Yeah. Well, it's not, it's, and I would just respond by saying, it's not me doing that. That's what Jesus said. Okay. He said, you have to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. We all know the story of the rich young ruler. He picked the one thing he knew that guy wanted more than anything else in the world. And essentially what Jesus was telling him is you have to put that aside for me. So it is exclusive. Christianity is exclusive. Now, I want to just make a comment on the issue that you brought up just a minute ago as far as people saying, well, it's exclusive in the sense that we are pushing out gay people or we're pushing out people who have same-sex attraction or, or something like that. And what I would say to that is, I don't, I, again, I think that's a bit of a false narrative. Mm -hmm. what, what the church is doing is we're saying the Bible defines sin a certain way, and that's going to hit every single one of us between the eyes. And so no matter what it is that I struggle with, I am invited, I am included, and I'm invited to come to Jesus to repent for my sin, to, like the rich young ruler, sell all my possessions. That, that was what he was holding on to. And, and follow Jesus, well, he, he couldn't do it. And he went away sad. And I think that's, that's more what we're seeing where people are coming to the church and they're not wanting to lay down every bit of themselves and deny themselves and pick up their cross and follow Jesus. And so like the rich young ruler, they might be going away sad, but it's, it's exclusive in that it makes the same request of every single one of us. And interestingly, Sam Alberry, who is a pastor from the UK, who experiences same-sex attraction, he's never been attracted to women for his entire life. But he made the point in his book, he said, if, you're, if you think I'm sacrificing more than you are to follow Jesus, because he, uh, just to, to uh, provide context, he lives a celibate life uh, because he believes that he's called to, to lay that down to follow Jesus because fulfilling those desires would be sinful. And so he says, if you think that I'm giving up something more than you are, I wonder if you really even understand the gospel. Ooh. And that, that hit me between the eyes. And yeah. so uh, I think that the way it gets framed, there's all kinds of memes and sound bites and ways that it gets framed. But I think the heart of it is more like uh, what we see with Jesus and the rich young ruler. Yeah. Meredith, did you have, if you unmute, I assume you have something you want to throw in. Um, I, no, I, I don't want to get us too off topic. I really, I like, I like this conversation, but I, I know you had this list of questions and I keep going off in, in side routes. That's fine. Well, let's do this. What you have just written a book that's coming out. It's on Amazon for pre-order right now. Another gospel, right? That's the title. Uh, yeah, another gospel, a lifelong Christian seeks truth in response to progressive Christianity. Okay. I guess I would ask two questions. One, what are you hoping to accomplish with your book? 
And two, how should Christians be responding in light of progressive theology creeping into the church? We haven't really said sort of, you know, the nuts and bolts, but you've listed a few things here and there about how it is. So feel free to just take that any direction you want, but sort of what's the response here or what should yeah. it be? What I hope to accomplish with the book is the primary goal of the reason I've written this is to help protect the church from uh, false teaching. And nobody wants to talk about that stuff. But if, again, if you look back through church history, that's what we've always done. Uh, the, the book of Jude, almost the whole book of Galatians is dedicated to protecting the church from false teaching. That is something that every Christian is called to do to guard our life and doctrine closely, as it says in Hebrews. And so my hope is that Christians who are encountering the ideas of progressive Christianity, whether it be in their friend circles or online or even in their church, that it will give them language to understand the red flags that they're sensing. If they hear a sermon and they go, something about that was off, but I don't quite know how to say it. I'm, my prayer is that my book will give them language to be able to identify it and respond to it biblically. So that would be the primary goal. And then to the question of how Christian, Christians should respond to progressive Christianity, I think that we need to treat it like Christians have treated other uh, heretical movements that have tried to come in the church throughout church history. We, we need to make sure it doesn't come into our churches. And that's going to take moral courage on the behalf of certain pastors to make sure they put those the doctrinal guardrails up because doctrine is a kind of become a dirty word right it's like nobody oh doctrine that sounds so like legalistic and this and that but there you know there are guidelines um and i've compared it to music if if you look at a beautiful piece of music and everybody's playing according to what's written on the sheet it's going to sound beautiful and people are going to be emotionally moved by it and it's going to do all that it's supposed to do but if you have one musician going i'm not i'm going to interpret these notes differently and I'm going to do my own thing over here, it's going to sound terrible. So uh, rather than seeing doctrine as this thing that brings legalism, actually good doctrine, good doctrine and good theology will keep legalism away because that would be another thing people add to scripture and that becomes legalism. And so good doctrine, good biblical interpretation, uh, I think makes for much more space and less legalism and less hypocrisy. And so I think the answer is not to get rid of doctrine, but to have better doctrine. Mm -hmm. So what do you say to somebody who's in um, a church maybe, and they see this sort of creeping in that they, they haven't gone full till we are progressive Christians, but I have a friend who said her child went to youth group and they started, they were going to be teaching on Jonah and they started by saying, now this didn't really happen, but um, isn't it a cool metaphor about being in the belly of the fish or whatever? Um, so is that something that, like, where do the radar bells need to go off or where can you say, well, that was one person or do you need to see like five of those instances, 10 of those instances? Do you need to hear it from the pulpit? Do you need to see it in writing? Kind of how, how does that work? I think it's going to start on the grassroots level. So uh, to use your example, you know, making Jonah a metaphor, that's not going to topple the gospel, right. but I might meet with that youth pastor and say, Hey, hey you know, my came home, tell me, you know, what, how did you come to the conclusion that that didn't really happen? Mm -hmm. And maybe you can, you know, to even share uh, one cool thing about Jonah that, that I learned when I was reconstructing is, you know, you think about Jonah getting spit on this beach by this whale. Well, if you, if you understand that the gods that they worshiped there in Nineveh, the, one of the main gods was the fish god. Mm 
Mm-hmm. I think how clever of God to have this big fish come up and barf this guy up onto the beach, possibly <laughs> even as these people might even be worshiping toward the ocean, toward their fish God. And they're like, oh, we better listen to him. I mean, I just think that, you know, just cool little facts like that mm-hmm. could be something where you could even just interact and ask, I think asking good questions. How did you come to this particular conclusion is a great question to ask to really make somebody, and I like when people ask me that because it makes me rethink my presuppositions, my mm-hmm. arguments, make sure I'm, I really know why I believe that. Yeah. And, um, you know, if that happened, uh, I might have that conversation, but if something like the, the youth pastor says, Hey guys, when you hear the, the, the idea that Jesus died for your sins, that is not biblical. You don't need to, I mean, that would be a much more high alert alarm mm-hmm. type of, of thing for me to hear. And at that point, I, I mean, I think we need to be having meetings and hold our church leaders accountable mm-hmm. for what they're teaching. And if it gets to the point where this is not, this is not historic Christianity anymore, then either it's time to maybe think about leaving, or maybe if you're a mature Christian and you want to stay and fight a little bit longer, I have lots mm-hmm. of friends who are doing that in certain denominations. It's up to, you know, your conscience between you and God about what he's leading you to do. But I do think we have to speak up though. We can't, we can't stay every little slide. In fact, I have a friend who in this progressive church I was in, she stayed longer than I did because she wasn't in that small class where it was all being discussed so openly. Yeah. But she would hear things from the pulpit and because he wouldn't say a lot of this stuff on Sundays. And she kept a notebook. And this is a great piece of advice. Every time he said something that she kind of went, hmm, she wrote it down. And after a year, she looked at her notebook and she goes, we're leaving. Like this was, it, it was, it was such a slow drift. Yeah. But as she kept notes and was every time something bothered her, it, it was really clear then when she looked back on it. And so maybe that's a good idea. If, you're, if you feel confused, just write down every time something happens. And then as it compiles, you, okay, it's time for a meeting or it's time to speak up. Uh, but, but just don't be lazy and just take in whatever comes. We have to, we're commanded to compare everything to scripture, to be good Bereans. And so, um, yeah, I think that would be my advice. Got it. Meredith, do you have anything else? Do you have any more questions? I uh, have one more question, but I think I think my internet might be fussing up. Can you hear me right now? We can hear you. Okay, I'm going to ask my question, and then you are free to edit it out if okay. <laughs> if my internet messes up. Um, Elisa, I heard a little bit of this in a previous answer, but I'd like you to flesh it out. So we've talked a lot about, obviously, the book is The Dangers of Progressive Christianity, and so we're talking about the dangers of the left. Do you look back toward the right and see any dangers on that side also? Um, So if this is progressive and fundamentalism, do you see any dangers of fundamentalism? Oh, certainly. Um, And so... First distinction I want to make, I don't like terms like left and right, because I think those can take on political and all kinds of different things. And my book is not political. It has nothing to do with politics. It's theological. And I'd also say, too, that my book isn't so much written to, to warn about the dangers of progressive Christianity, but to help give Christians who already have red flags about it to give them language. So I'm not actually trying to persuade somebody who's a progressive Christian to come back. This is more for people who don't want to go progressive. They're concerned about the progressive influx and they, they want help with identifying it and all that. But uh, certainly, in fact, when you look back through church history, 
you can see the pendulum swinging hyper fundamentalist over to super liberal over to hyper fundamentalist over to super we just but it's our human nature right we do this with all kinds of things it's so hard uh to to find uh, the view that is just the right one and not to be swayed by all of these extreme movements that come in. And so, yeah, I have friends who were told that if they wore shorts, they were going to go to hell. Or if they were caught in a movie theater, when Jesus came back, they were going to go to hell. That's ridiculous. And the hyper-fundamentalist, hyper-fundamentalism that so many people grew up in is a problem for sure. Um, I would, in fact, one, one thing I considered doing, although I went in a different direction, but I consider writing a second book after this one that deal with our own like in in the more doctrinally whatever you want to say correct churches like we got our own problems you know <laughs> like we got to sort ourselves out too so yeah we've got a lot of problems um but i think it's just kind of like what i said before good doctrine a good understanding of the bible and who god is is going to give you a healthier church it's going to so anytime people are adding to scripture anytime you're having uh i think one okay here's one perfect example where i think the evangelical church but you see this in the progressive church too so this isn't just exclusive to evangelicalism but this whole cult of celebrity that we see the cult of personality that can get going with these big ministry platforms and you know i and that can lead to abuses of power yep. which can trickle down into toxic systems in churches bad leadership models i think the evangelical church needs to get back to a biblical elder board biblical model where you don't just have one guy in charge call, hearing from god and calling the shots i think that's bad news and i think we're seeing a lot of fallout from that so yeah i certainly wouldn't try to uh, give the picture that that the current iteration of evangelicalism has got it right uh, but uh but it's but again that's why my book is theological because i just have this passion if, if i can get people to read the bible to understand what christianity is i think that's what's going to cure the gospel is what's going to cure all of those kinds of problems if people really take it seriously that's good okay totally untheological question for you i'm curious what your logo is i've been trying to figure out is it a guitar is it a broom is it an a awesome. lisa is it pointing up to the heaven? What is that about? <laughs> so, okay. This honestly is the most common question I get. I'm actually going to make a video on this because I'm like, everyone's asking me. And then you, and then you have kind of some people going, is that a, like a satanic symbol? Is it a upside down <laughs> cross? What do, we, what do we have going on back there? So this is, um, I went, I did some branding a while back uh, because I needed help with social media because I hate it and I don't have a ton of time for it. But they came up with this logo <laughs> and I loved it because our theme is roots, right? So these that you see down at the bottom, those are roots. And so that's the historic church. That's uh, those early creeds, the early church fathers, the apostles, Jesus, the, the foundation. And then that one thing you see streaming up um, that looks like a guitar neck is us. That's us growing up out of the shoot of that historic Christianity. So it's, it's a logo that's meant to convey uh, the idea of historic Christianity continuing on to us today. I love it. And it's within a circle, which is kind of, I, yeah, that's great. I mean, now the people that are just listening are going to have to watch the whole thing just to see the logo, but, um, yeah. all right. Well, if you have any parting words, throw them out now. Otherwise I think I'm going to go ahead and close this out and let us all get on to our days. Yeah, no. Well, uh, what I'll, what I'll tell you is my book is, it's another gospel lifelong 
Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity. It's written as a memoir, so it's very story-driven. So I'm hoping that that will be disarming for people in the way that they'll just get to follow along in my story of going through these doubts, how I discovered my answers, where I got them from, what was my thinking like. Um, it's not a book that's going to just, uh, you know, blast you in the face with, this is dangerous. It, it's going gonna, it's gonna to walk you along uh, with a story. So you can, you can get that. You can go to alisachilders.com slash another gospel. It's also on Amazon. So, Um, well, Elisa, thank you so much for joining us today. This was wonderful. We're going to have to have you back sometime. Um, But thank you. Yes, go buy her book. And then, of course, you can go to her website, which is alisachilders.com, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. A-L-I-S-A is how you spell Elisa. Childers is pretty self-explanatory. And as for Theology on Tap and Theology on Air, you can find us on Facebook, social media, facebook.com slash Theology on Houston. I mean, excuse me, Theology on Tap Houston. And our website is up and running, houstontot.com. And you can read a little bit more about our leadership team or find out about upcoming events. Um, But of course, until we hear or see from you guys again, we encourage you as always to question freely, think deeply, and disagree as needed.